It's good to be here again in this room. I've really missed being here on Thursday nights with all of you. I've enjoyed a little bit of time to be with the family, but I'm really excited about this fall and about the new series that we get to dig into. So if you could, um, please turn with me, though, to the book of Job. Turn with me to Job chapter 1, and we'll pray for our evening tonight. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for your great grace that is abundant, your compassion that reaches to us in our weakness and in our lostness, and and even, even reaches to us to discipline us and to guide us. We pray that we would be, even this night as we hear your word, slow to speak, quick to hear, and slow to anger. But we pray that as we hear your word, we wouldn't be quick to throw up our fists and fight and argue, but that we'd be quick to hear, hear what it has to say. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Job is a book you do not want to go to when you're trying to give definition to what a friend of God looks like. This is not the book you want to go when you want to figure out what God does and how God treats his friends. You probably are very familiar with the book of Job, and at least the first two chapters and the last two chapters. But <laughs> you see it starts out with a man, an ancient man, who was blameless, chapter 1, verse 1, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Job was a man of faith. And notice this, he was a man of inward faith as well as outward faith. He was blameless. You see in chapter 1, verse 5, Job had a concern for sin, not just what was said with his mouth, but also the secret, unseen intentions of the heart as well. Job cared about those things. And, and we see that this is even God, God's assessment of Job too. The very same description that our narrator, a narrator gives of Job in chapter 1, verse 1, God does as well. But what does God do with his most prized man on earth? How does God treat his friend Job? He brings up Job's name before Job's greatest enemy, Satan. Now, I hope God doesn't do that almost to me, because look at what happens. He allows Satan to attack Job fiercely and ferociously, and he even makes it feel and feel as though it is coming from God himself. When Satan attacks Job, notice in verse 16, Fire fell, but it's fire of God. And then the timing of all of the different attacks. He loses this and he loses that. It happens right after another. It is almost feeling from Job's perspective as if God is angry at him. And notice, uh, heaven never explains itself. And this is almost the the story, the big lesson of the book of Job. Uh, what I need when suffering happens, when difficulties happen, when life seems terrible, I do not need heaven's big explanation of why this is happening to me to persevere. That's not what I need. No, the book of Job says what I need is a big view of God and a worship of God from the heart. That is how I persevere through difficulty and trouble. 
But notice this, this testing really, really hurts. Look over at verse, uh, chapter 19, verse 6. This is Job reflecting on his trouble. And what does Job say? God has wronged me and has closed his net around me. Notice, to the righteous man, God's actions feel like he has been wrong in treating Job this way. Now, that's a whole sermon for a whole nother time. How, how can God be in the right and I be in the right, because I really think I'm in the right, and this be happening to me? Of course, what, what Job is missing here is, is how he can be in relationship to God, right before God, and also be a son who receives discipline. That's what Job doesn't have here. But it feels as though God is against Job in a way. Why? Because his circumstances are so difficult. Maybe perhaps you have difficult circumstances in your life, and it, it seems too, too calculated to be an accident. It, it feels as though God is coming after me. What you need is a, a new heart, a, a, a new mind for who God is, for sure. But this is also what the readers of the letter that we're going to talk about this fall, we're also feeling. Uh, Robert Fall, in a commentary on Job, actually tells a story about Mother Teresa after she had had undergone a long series of depression. Now, I don't actually believe Mother Teresa actually knows the biblical gospel and believes the biblical gospel, and this is just a story about Mother Teresa, but it's an interesting one because it's said of Mother Teresa that after a long time of depression, she heard God's voice speak to her, and God said to Mother Teresa, this is how I always treat my friends. And then Mother Teresa said in this story, then it's not surprising that you have so few. Now, that, that might be how it feels sometimes to be one of God's people. It feels as though God is being cruel and being heartless and has no compassion, no thought over me. That's how my life feels. And this, once again, is how the people in the letter that we are going to be discussing this fall fell. So, surprise, surprise, we're not in Job. Some of you are, ah, oh, man. Uh, but turn over to James chapter 1. James chapter one. This is written to people who feel exactly the same way, perhaps, as Job does. God has put us in difficult places, and it's not fair. I don't understand why he's doing this. But before we can really get into the letter and understand, we, we have to do three, just three pieces of introduction for us tonight to really understand the book of Job. We're going to do uh, the three key introductions that have to happen in order for us to really get a feel for the letter to James. We're going to talk about the people, the pastor, and the point. The people, the pastor, and the point, if you're keeping, uh, if you're keeping notes. There you go, you got the whole sermon. Uh, first key introduction, let's talk about the people. Who was, who was this letter written to? What was their situation? Look at verse 1 of James. Verse 1 of James 1. James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are in the dispersion greetings. Notice the second half of that verse there, to the twelve tribes tribes, and these 12 tribes are said to be in the dispersion. Now, best understanding of what this means is it means these are actual Jewish Christians who are outside of the land 
of Israel when James is writing this. These are actual Jewish Christians outside of the land of Israel. They are dispersed across the known world. But notice this, they're dispersed across the known world because they are Christians. Not because they are Jews, but because of righteousness. Or for righteousness' sake, they are being scattered. They are being dispersed. And this word dispersion is actually a uh, what they say, a technical term for Jews outside of the land. If, if Jews inside the land of Israel ever wanted to refer to the what they called Hellenized Jews, there were the Jews maybe that were either, either living in the land or specifically the, the Jews outside of the land, they would refer to them as the dispersed, the scattered, the dispersion. Now, there was a historical reason for this, of course. Way back in 722 B.C., almost you know, 700 years before this, the northern kingdom of Israel was scattered by the nation of Assyria. And then in 586 BC, the southern tribe of Judah and whatever else was left of the other tribes with Judah were then exiled to Babylon and they were dispersed from the land. And then in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, some of them chose to come back, but most of them chose to remain in their new found homes outside of Israel. And they were referred to by the Jerusalem Jews as the dispersion. These people are still scattered. And that is actually what the word dispersion means. It refers to scattering like you would scatter seeds. They are scattered throughout the world. The 12 tribes that hold the promises of God, that God would one day come through the Messiah and resurrect the kingdom and the throne of David. But right now, it's clearly not happening because the 12 tribes are scattered all over the place. But this isn't actually the dispersion I think James is referring to here. This isn't the Old Testament scattering, but this is a New Testament scattering that has now come to a new generation of Jewish Christians. And why has it come to them? It's come to them because they have chosen to follow Jesus. Do you ever feel that in your life? Man, trouble happens when I start following Jesus. This is what happened to these Jewish Christians as well. You may be remembering from Acts 2 (coughs) what happened. You saw all of the Jews from outside of the land come to Jerusalem to celebrate a feast. This is what the dispersion did. They came back to Jerusalem. But during this time, God sent his spirit and revealed the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And these Jews were wonderfully saved, believing in their Messiah. And what happened? Those Jews didn't want to return to their homes. I have a new family here, and it's closer to me than any biological family I have back at home. And I want to stay here with my new family, and the church grew in Jerusalem. And the first eight chapters of Acts just record the church growing and growing and growing. But then in Acts 8 and in Acts 12, we see something happen. A horrible persecution begins. It comes from the hand of Saul, who would later become Paul, who would become the greatest missionary of all time, but it begins through him. It says in Acts uh, 8, verse 1, Saul was in hearty agreement of putting Stephen to death, and on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered. Same 
um, Greek word that's used in the Greek Old Testament for dispersion. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and, and Samaria, except for the apostles. And then in Acts 12, we see they are further scattered under the persecution of Herod. They are scattered for their faith. But, but get this, get this. The whole history of uh, Judaism, you could say, is this. Israel disobeys God, and Israel is punished for it. Israel's disciplined for it. Israel keeps disobeying God. When are they going to start learning that their sin causes consequences in their life? That's, that's the whole history of the Jewish faith in the Old Testament. But what happens to these believers they actually believe that the Christ who was promised in the Old Testament has come. They obey God. They actually respond to the one who was predicted as that prophet who would come. They believe God, but now these Jewish Christians are being scattered, not for discipline, but for righteousness. They're being scattered. Bad things are happening to their life, not because they're in sin, but because they're doing something right. Isn't that just how Job started out to? They're scattered because of righteousness. Now, what, what, what did their lives look like being dispersed? This is where we kind of have to kind of waltz through the letter of James and kind of pick up clues here and there. Let me just, let me just give you three pieces of information about these people, about what their lives were like being dispersed. For righteousness' sake. <clears throat> it seems very clear to me through the letter of James that they suffered poverty for the most part and they suffered persecution. And this is what would happen, right? What, what would your family do if you were suddenly scattered, have to flee California for your Christian faith? Maybe some of you would land on your feet. Maybe you'd find another job. But maybe some of you, maybe most of you, most of your parents wouldn't be able to find a really good job first off. It would be maybe night shifts for your dad. Maybe night shifts for your mom. You would be living with relatively a little income. Your life would be hard. It would be difficult. You would have not a lot of close relationships unless you connected with Christians in those places. It would be insecure. It would be unstable. This is what we see probably is what happened to uh, James's audience. And, and, and for the most part, James seems to be writing to a, a poorer group of people. You see this in, in James chapter 2. James chapter 2, they're, they're showing favoritism towards the rich. And, and James seems to suggest that many of them are poor, and that's why they're showing favoritism. Maybe, maybe this person, being a good friend of this person, will help make my life easier, perhaps they are thinking. But, but James is quick to correct them. Uh, they, it's, it's actually the rich who are blaspheming the name of God. James 2, verse 7. It's, it's the rich people who are mistreating you. It's the rich people, 5 verse 1, who are trusting in their riches and perhaps mocking you. Maybe it's people around you saying, oh, look at those silly Christians. Look at where their faith has brought them. Glad I'm not them right now. But this might have caused them to respond with confusion and doubt and insecurity and maybe in the quiet of their heart, maybe just a little bit of grumbling. Just a little bit of grumbling. Why is this happening to me? 
I, lo- I love that musical, Fiddler on the Roof. I love that one song that the man from Fiddler on the Roof sings. Uh, would it interrupt some vast, eternal plan if I were a rich man? Why do I have to be poor? Why is this happening to me, God? Why is my life difficult? But this is something we also see about them in, in how they responded to difficulty, perhaps. Now, we're reading into the letter, but I sense, I sense that, that their circumstances were exposing in them a second feature, that they were spiritually immature. That they were spiritually immature. Yes, they were persecuted. Yes, they were suffering. But their response to their difficult situation showed their spiritual immaturity. Now, now notice this. James does not call them unbelievers. He refers to them as brethren often. And he refers to them as beloved brothers often. But it seems as though he is calling them to examine their faith. It seems as though he's calling them to test their faith. And it seems as though he's exhorting them to growth, to maturity. We'll see this again <clears throat> next week. Uh, you, but you see there in verse uh, 4 of chapter 1, right? Let perseverance have its perfect work so that you may become perfect and complete, lacking nothing. James is not talking about becoming righteous before God, becoming perfect before God. He's assuming that. He's saying that you may become mature. Grow up in your faith. Rejoice in this trouble that's upon you because God wants to use this trouble to mature you. But spiritual immaturity responds to trouble how? Responds to trial how? How, how, does, how does spiritual immaturity respond? It responds with grumbling, complaining, doubting, confusion, perhaps. It responds to trial with grumbling, and it also ironically responds to the good times with pride, right? That's a sign of spiritual immaturity. Everything's going well, I must be great. When bad times are happening, everything's going terrible, why is God doing this to me, right? But they're also being exposed in another way through their situation. Not only are they struggling in hard situations, not only are is, is James saying you are spiritually immature, but he also will say you are being exposed for the worldliness that is in your heart and the worldliness that is in your thinking. They, they, are, they are poor, they are persecuted, they are spiritually mature, but they are worldly in their value system. He says in chapter 1, verse 8, that they are praying double-minded, which I believe means that they are praying with worldly values in their mind. And they're praying for worldly things. It's not necessarily bad to have things, but if that is what you're praying for, Lord, if you'll give me this, I will be happy. That is a worldly value and treasure system in the mind and in the heart. And then in chapter 4, verse 4, he says this pretty explicitly. 4, verse 4, he says, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? They are friends with the world. And their heart is in a dangerous place. Because, we see there, friendship with the world puts you at animosity or opposition or alienation with God. That's the people. 
But notice this, James isn't done with them. James isn't, isn't giving up on them. James isn't saying, I'm, I'm through with you because of your spiritual immaturity. I'm, I'm through with you because of your worldliness. No, what does he do? He hears of their trial. He hears of their trouble. He hears of the difficulty of their responses to these trials and to these troubles. And he goes towards them with compassion. So this is the second key introduction we need to make in the letter of James. Let's, ref- let's study and figure out who their pastor is. James. Who is this James? Who is this James? There are four Jameses in the New Testament that possibly could be this James who is writing to them, but probably only two are good candidates. Why do I say that? Well, the first two, James the son of Alphaeus, we don't know anything about except for his nickname, which was James the Less. So I would expect if he was the one writing to them, he'd have to do quite an introduction before they just receive anything from James, the son of Alphaeus, once again, because his nickname was the Less. There's another James, James, the father of Judas. Once again, this is Judas Iscariot. I think he would need quite an introduction before he wrote them a letter that they would receive. So that leaves two candidates that were, would be the best. There's James, the son of Zebedee, one of the 12 apostles. This would be James and John, the two brothers, the two, two sons of thunder. Um, and then there's another James, James, the half-brother of Jesus, referred to as just. Now, I would say James, the son of Zebedee, could be a good choice because he was a fairly he was a fairly popular, well-known disciple. He was, he was one of those close to Jesus, closer than the other ones. But he was martyred so early, it is highly unlikely that he wrote this letter. And also, there's a really good reason why he didn't write this letter. The other James, James the Just, was really well-known. He was the leader of the early church. And all you had to do in the early church was say, I am going to see James. And nobody needed any other explanation for who you were going to. For example, if you came to church and you told your your parents, I am going to Grace Bible Church and I have to see Pastor, they're not going to think you're going to see Darren. They're not even going to think you're going to see me. They're going to think you're going to talk to Steve because he, he is the most famous pastor of all of us, right? Like the same thing if you referred to him as Steve. I'm going to go over there to talk to Steve, although you should never talk to a grown-up that way. I'm going to go over and talk to Steve over there. Nobody thinks you're referring to Steve Wilson. <laughs> Maybe you are. I don't know. Anyway, let's just do a quick bio of James, James the Just. First off, he was the oldest after Jesus to be born of Mary and Joseph. He was the oldest after Jesus. Remember, Jesus wasn't actually born of Joseph. He was born of a virgin womb. So we refer to James the Just as the half-brother of Jesus. Interestingly enough, James and his brother, and even his mother, we get the sense, didn't believe in Jesus. But we also know this of James. He was a very good Jew. While he is going to attend a feast in Jerusalem, John 7, 5, and 10 tells us he is kind of insulting Jesus because he doesn't believe in Jesus. He would eventually become a follower of Jesus, but this only happened after the resurrection of Jesus because Jesus, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 7, especially appeared to James separate from the other apostles. 
He would, of course, rise to prominence in the early church very quickly by Galatians 1 through 2, early letters in the New Testament. He is already referred to as a pillar of the church. He is likely there in Acts 1. He was likely there in Acts 2, but he rose very quickly to be head of the church. By Acts 15, he is the one leading the elders and leading the apostles in the Jerusalem council. He was a very significant man. Once again, you see him referred to in the letters, and he is only ever referred to as James. If you're going to Jerusalem to see James, you weren't going to Jerusalem to see James, the father of Judas. You were going to see James, the just. But it wasn't because of his family ties that he probably rose to prominence. It was probably because of his godliness and his giftedness. It is said of him that his nickname in the early church was Camel Knees. Because his knees were so worn away from all the praying that he did that they were ugly, that nobody wanted to look at them. That's how much time he spent in prayer. And it's even said that he was held in such high esteem by unbelieving Jews that initially the leaders in Israel and Jerusalem that hated James and hated Christianity couldn't kill James because he was in such high esteem as a moral, godly Jew. He would, of course, be martyred in AD 62, but James was well-known and well-loved and well-respected. But why would I describe this James as the pastor? Well, why, why am I introducing this James to you as Pastor James? Well, once again, he was head of the Jerusalem church. He was the leader of the church, but he wasn't a leader according to the value systems of leadership that the world gives. He, he wasn't a leader because he barked louder than everybody else. He, he wasn't a leader because he dragged everyone with him, whether they liked it or not. He was a leader because of his godliness and his humility and his grace and his giftedness. He, he saw himself as simply an under-shepherd, a servant, a slave of Christ, entrusted to the precious care of the people in his charge. Notice, go back to James chapter 1. How does he describe himself? He doesn't say James, the brother of Jesus. He doesn't say James the just. He doesn't say, James, the head of the church, and get along and behave and obey me. No, he refers to himself with only one description. He refers to himself as James, a slave of God and of Jesus Christ. Notice, he's not the slave of God either. He's not the greatest slave. He is just one of many slaves of God and of Jesus Christ. A slave was one who completely belonged to the will and to the wishes of their master. The, the slave was someone whose sole focus was to please his master. Uh, when I work, it is for my master. Oh, when I work, I hope no one sees me. I am but a channel for my master to minister. It's not me who is working here, but it's my master. I, I am but a slave. I'm not on a personal errand. I'm not on a personal mission, but I am on mission and service of Jesus Christ. That is James's focus. Maybe he's even saying to these Christians, 
in referring to himself as a slave, I am not here to be your friend. I am here to be but a channel of God's friendship towards you. But, but I am here to only be an instrument of God. I am here to communicate to you what God wants you to know. This is an interesting question, isn't it? It's a good question for me to ask myself and for every preacher to ask himself. James describes himself as a slave and how does a slave preach? He doesn't preach with his view. He preaches with God's view. He doesn't preach with his words. No, he preaches with God's words. He doesn't preach with his hopes or his strengths. He preaches with God's hopes and God's strengths. This is who James is. He is a slave of God. He is bringing God's message. He is God's pastor. But he preaches, and you'll notice this about James right away in our letter, he preaches in a bruising manner that is meant to build up. That's how God preaches. He preaches in a way that maims you so that it will mature you. He preaches in such a way that alarms you so that it can awaken you. That's how a slave preaches, and that's how James preaches. I know this summer we talked about friendship, but you know what I think of whenever I think of James? I think of someone who sends friendly fire. Friendly fire. We talked about this in Proverbs 27.6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Who's your greatest friend? The one that tells you the truth, that tells you the most faithful words. It is your God, even though you would have difficulty explaining to yourself that he is a friend to you. But still, this is how God would speak to you. They would be faithful words that would hurt you, that would injure you, that would bruise you. But they would be faithful because they would be true and they'd be helpful and they would change you. And this, my friends, is how James speaks to us. He speaks to us as a friend but a friend that sends friendly fire our way. But this brings us to his point. So we've talked about the people. We've talked about their pastor, which is James. But let's talk about the point. What is the point of this letter that we're going to be talking about this fall? What's the point? Some don't believe James has a point. Some people believe James has all sorts of points. Some people believe that the letter of James is just you know, Proverbs of the Old te- or the New Testament. But this isn't the case, I believe. James is preaching to us a sermon. James has a specific pinpoint point that he wants to communicate to all of us. Whenever I'm preaching, I really have something that I want to communicate. And I really have something that I want to accomplish. And I want to be accomplished in you through the Word of God. And this is what James is doing as well. James is eager to preach. He's going to preach a scathing sermon, but he's eager to preach a laser-focused sermon. He's going to bring God's truth, and he's going to pack a punch as he brings God's truth to such a point where James is going to preach a sermon, but he's going to give us a warning label about how much it's going to hurt. Notice over in James 1, verse 19, this is like a warning label. (coughs) Man, my throat. You ever... um, you ever get a cup of coffee from McDonald's and there's a warning label outside and it's like caution hot. 
don't dump this on yourself. I just want to know the first guy that dumped it on himself that got that caution label on there. Or I don't know, I don't know if any of you have created the uh, cardinal sin of ripping off a tag from a mattress or, uh, you know, like a pillow or something. Don't do that. I don't know why, but you shouldn't do that. I think they're watching you or something. But warning labels warn you of danger. And I kind of feel like James is about to preach a sermon that packs such a punch that he must warn you. Warning, the word of God is coming. Are you ready for it? Are you prepared? Notice James 1.19. Know this, my beloved brothers. Oh, thank you. I'll just take it. Excuse me, this is embarrassing. <laughs> this break has been brought to you by nothing because this has nothing on it. Thank you. You read my mind. No, notice, notice the warning label here. Wow, my voice went up an octave. Uh, know this. <laughs> know this, my beloved brothers. Everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, laying aside all filthiness and all, and all that remains of wickedness, in gentleness receive the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. The word of God is coming. Lay aside your sin, because that could keep you from hearing the word of God. He must warn you because of the point that he's about to make. Are you ready to hear what James is after? Be careful. It's going to hurt. The word of God is going to act like a mirror, James says. It's going to show you you. And you need to be quick to hear and, and slow to argue. And you need to be slow to anger because the word of God is sharp and it hurts and it packs a punch. That's what James is saying. But what's the purpose of his sermon? What's the purpose of his sermon? I would, I would summarize James's sermon kind of to you in, in kind of two, two points with lots of subpoints. First off, James earnestly, as a pastor of a scattered flock that's going through all sorts of difficulties, James wants to warn you of the danger of a worldly kind of faith. James wants to warn of the danger of having a worldly kind of wisdom. He's going to say, watch out and get away from worldliness. It is dangerous, and a worldly kind of faith is dangerous. Turn over to chapter 3, chapter 3.13. This is what I would consider the crescendo of the sermon. This is the high point. You know where a sermon reaches its high point. That's where the application is. That's where the point is felt. Then you're like, okay, now I really know what he is trying to accomplish in this sermon. And chapter 3, 13, all the way through 4, 10 is, is James's crescendo. It's the high point. It's what he's driving at. This is where the application is. But he says in chapter 3, verse 13, who among you is wise? Who among you has understanding. Let him show his good conduct. Let, let him show by his good conduct his work. Sorry. Let him show by his good conduct his works in the gentleness of wisdom. 
But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be angry and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not coming down from above, but is earthly, demonic, or natural, demonic. For where, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil practice. Do you, do you feel the warning there? Be careful that the wisdom, the faith that you think you have isn't a worldly kind of faith. What is a worldly kind of faith? Write these points down. What does a worldly kind of faith look like? It means you are a mere a mirror of the earthly and of the natural in your living. It means you look like the earthly and the natural. You, you look like all the people around you. That's a, that's a worldly kind of faith. That's not how believers are supposed to be. The world is to be alien to us and strange to us in their practices and, and we are to be alien and strange to them. Secondly, a, a worldly kind of faith is not only a mirror of the earthly, a, a mirror of the natural, but it's also motivated by evil lusts from the heart. This is a worldly kind of faith, and you see this back in James 1, verse, verse 14. Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. This is a worldly kind of faith. It is truly motivated by its own lusts, not of love for God, but of lusts. It, it's a mirror of the earthly and the natural. It's motivated by evil lusts from within. And also notice this. This is the scariest one. A worldly kind of faith is maneuvered by demonic forces. Now that's something you don't want to hear on a Thursday night. But, but notice, what, what, is, what is James saying here in chapter 3? It's particularly chapter 3, verse 15. We'll talk about this later. <coughs> but notice, the wisdom from the earth is described as earthly. It's described as natural, but also notice it's described as demonic. It is, it is maneuvered by evil, and not just the evil of your heart, evil forces that are trying to keep you from God and keep you from honoring Christ are using your flesh and your weakness and your sin to maneuver you like a pawn. You could say it like this. Uh, worldly faith, worldly Christians are easy targets. They're easy targets for those who want to look like the world, think like the world, be like the world. You are an easy target to be made useless for Christ and to be even useful for the devil's purpose. But notice it's demonic. That is the wisdom from below. The world system isn't just independent of God. It is maneuvered, controlled by the devil. You ever hear that scary verse in 1 John, right? 1 John 5, it, it talks about, we, we know, 1 John 5 verse 19, we know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Don't be foolish. Don't be naive. And the evil one makes evil 
easy work of worldly Christians. They're, they're the mirror of the earthly, the natural. They are motivated by their own evil lusts. They are maneuvered easily by demonic forces. But notice, worldly faith also moves you away from your God. That is what a worldly faith does. And this gets us back to 4 verse 4. Worldly wisdom causes you to drift. Worldly wisdom causes you to wander. You're drifting and drifting and suddenly you open your eyes and realize, where's the shore? I don't even know where it is. You're wandering and wandering and suddenly you are lost. It produces all sorts of attitudes of the heart. Distrust in God, pride in yourself, despair, hardness of heart under preaching of God's word. That's what a worldly faith is. It is resistant and hard to God. It doesn't trust in God. It trusts in yourself. There's this quote about worldliness that I always think of from David Wells. And he, and he describes worldliness like this. Worldliness is when sin becomes normal and godliness becomes strange. That's what worldliness is. Godliness, following God, is strange to me. And suddenly, you wake up one day, and you're not even a believer. Why? Because your faith was always worldly, and never truly from above. So James, first off, notice, he warns of a worldly faith for good reason. I don't want to have a worldly faith. But also, he writes to also woo you, Not just to warn you, but to woo you of and towards a heavenly faith. He's not just saying, keep away from worldliness, but he is also here to say, pursue, pursue a true and living faith from above. Chapter 3, verse 17 goes on to say, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruits, without doubting, without hypocrisy. The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Notice, to people with a heavenly kind of faith, trials and troubles produce something completely opposite. Uh, They show through trials, what their faith is like and what comes out. Peacefulness, peaceableness. They're considerate. And, and, and this one's interesting. They're, they're known for their submissiveness. That doesn't mean they're a throw rug that everybody walks over. Hey, did you hear about John over there? Yeah, you can get him to do anything. No, it, it means that they're eager to agree. They're, they're not quick to put up fists and fight you on everything. They are quick to submit And notice they are filled with mercy and other good fruits. When when you squeeze these people, when when pressure squeezes these people, fruits come out. They are trusting, they're faithful, they're believing of God and everything. And notice this is believing without hypocrisy in verse 17. Wouldn't you love that? To have a sweet trust in God that that is not fake not false. I genuinely trust that God is up to something. And I don't know what it is, but I trust him. That's what a worldly kind of faith doesn't have and what a heavenly faith produces. Real quick, 
I'm, I'm going to summarize uh, the, the letter to James in three points. If James was preaching a th- sermon, it would be three points because all sermons are three points. James would say this. First chapter, this is James's first point. And we'll go through this all in detail. But James, in big picture form, trials build your faith. That's what we're going to talk about next week and the following. Trials build your faith in James 1, 2 through 18. And then for most of the letter, James 1, 19 through 4, 12, James is going to say, God's word, like a mirror, shows you your faith. Trials build your faith, but God's word will show you your faith. People around you will show you your faith. How you respond to your circumstances will show your faith. God is wanting to reveal your faith to you. And then, of course, the last part of James 4, 13 through 5, 12, perseverance proves your faith. Trials build your faith. God shows you your faith. And perseverance proves your faith. That's James's sermon. But warning, warning label, this is not an easy sermon to hear. It hurts. But if, but if I'm being honest with you, my favorite sermons are the sermons that hurt me the most. And that's why we should listen to James. He cares for us. Now perhaps to go back to the initial question that maybe some of you are facing, why would God do this to me? Why is difficulty happening to me? Why is trials and tribulations happening to me? Why are struggles and difficulties happening to me? James wants to tell you, perhaps, maybe, maybe God is working to grow your faith. And James wants to say, maybe God is trying to reveal you to you. Reveal your sin to you and expose who you truly are to you. And to ask you a question, is your faith from above or from below? And maybe God is seeking to purify you. And maybe, just maybe, God, through friendly fire, is displaying not the greatness of his distance, not the greatness of his indifference, But maybe, just maybe, God is trying to display the greatness of his mercy and the length of his compassion. That is actually what God is doing when life is difficult. God is being merciful to you. And you say, you're just making that up. Look, James 5, James 5. He uses an illustration of our old friend Job. How was God acting when Job was suffering? How was God acting and behaving when Job was hearing all of these lies told by his friends of who God was and who he was? How was God acting? Was he acting cold? Was he acting indifferent? How is God acting to anyone when trials come their way? James 5 verse 11. We count those blessed who persevere. You have heard of the perseverance of Job, and you have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings. Now he describes the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. That's who God is when he sends his children through trouble and trial. He is full of compassion and mercy. Why? Because maybe, just maybe, he is testing your faith proving its validity, and also exposing its weakness so that you will not be duped and you will not be a pawn, but that you can be a mature Christian. That 
when you are squeezed, produces all sorts of fruit. But let me just say this to you. You can only rejoice in trials this evening and your life if you are in Christ. Because unless you are in Christ, there is no rejoicing in trials. God only treats his sons this way. And he'll only treat you this way if you are in Christ. If you are out of Christ, your trials are just trials and effects of the fall. But in Christ, God in his mercy and his, in his compassion is choosing to be merciful and gracious towards you and sanctify you. That is what we get to look forward to. We get to look forward to God treating us like friends. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for this word and we pray that you would use it in our hearts to change and test and try us. You would hold your word up to us like a perfect mirror and expose our weaknesses and help us to grow. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.